0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more
2: at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Monday, February 6th, 2023. And this is our 348th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a chef, founder, and the creative force behind a culinary lifestyle company that celebrates Africa's cultural and culinary heritage. And I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start with my PR tip, then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to shine your light. Follow your passions and never allow anyone to squash your dreams or desires. Seek what brings you joy and surround yourself with like-minded people who believe in you, and your capabilities. Be, be proud of where you came from, where you are today, and where you're going, and simply what makes you, you. We all have a light within us that makes us unique and one of a kind, so let's always remember to let it shine and never let anyone rain on our parade. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm so excited my guest joining me. It is Salasi Atadika, She's the chef and founder of Madunu, Madunu Chocolates, and Madunu Institute, all based in Ghana, Africa. After over a decade spent engaged in humanitarian work with the United Nations and years of self-teaching in the culinary arts, Selassie completed coursework at the Culinary Institute of America. A founding member of Trio Tok, the first nomadic restaurant in Dakar, Senegal, she brought her innovative approach to African cuisine back home in 2014. Her food enterprise, Madunu, is a nomadic and private dining enterprise in Accra, which embodies new African cuisine with its favored final course of delectable handcrafted chocolate truffles, which I want one right now. (laughs) without further ado, hi, Selassie, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, nice to be here. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
3: I'm well, thanks.
1: Where are you? Um, I'm
3: currently in Accra. <laughs> <laughs>
1: this is this is a first for me. <laughs> nice. I mean, I've had remote shows, but this this is topping it right now. So this is very exciting. Um good thanks to technology. <laughs> so um, but yeah, I've I mean we've met at we've met at some conferences and um I know a little bit about your story, but I'm, I want to hear so much more. I want to first start out as I always do on my show uh, and find out uh, more about your background and how what led you into this culinary career that you have
3: um, It's probably a little bit of a winding road. Um, I was born in Ghana, and my family moved to the u s uh, when I was about six years old. There was political instability uh, in the country, so we had to leave and so while being in the u s uh, we held on to a major part of our, our culture, which was through food um, in the way my mom was cooking. So um, this is like in the early eighties, my mom was kind of like in New York, trying to figure out how to recreate a lot of our traditional foods um, using local ingredients or whatever she could find in, in New York. And so um, it just became something that I was curious about that I loved that we couldn't get anywhere else. And I wanted to know more about. Um, as I started working, uh, my first sort of career path was with the UN. And uh, while I was traveling, I just really missed my food from home. And so I started, you know, cooking it more and more. But I also managed to travel through the African continent. And I think the last time I counted, it's about 44 countries. So um, I have 10 left to go. Uh, But I I really got to eat widely through the continent and just sort of um, ask questions, see ingredients, see how food was bringing people together. And um, I eventually sort of decided that I really wanted to create change but using food as a vehicle Um, not a lot of people had the knowledge that I did uh, that I've been able to gain through those travels but also um, I just kept hearing people sort of not understanding our food or just sort of saying negative things about it and I think I just kind of decided that it was really time to start changing that narrative and really showcasing the amazing wonderful beautiful ingredients that the continent has to offer while creating an economy around these ingredients. Um, I started seeing a lot of the things that I, I grew up eating, they, they kind of were falling out of fashion, um, and people were kind of gravitating towards sort of international um, fast food, if you will. And um, I just really feel passionate about trying to make sure that these ingredients survive um, th- through, through time.
1: Amazing. So, so what led you, you went to the CIA for, you did a program there and then mm-hmm. you, when you were there, were you thinking you were going to move back to Africa or were you not sure?
3: I sort of did it in, in a completely different order. Okay. <laughs> so um, I ended up going to Dartmouth for my undergrad. And at that time I was actually pre-med. So I was all very heavy math, science, chemistry. Um, and um, when I finished um, there, halfway through, I sort of decided that Medicine wasn't my path, and I ended up uh, studying geography uh, and environmental studies. And then I started working for the UN, and um, at that point, I was actually in Senegal. And what I noticed was, um, as sort of internationals living in Senegal, we were eating from grocery stores, and these grocery stores are like chain stores from France and using imported ingredients. And so I gave a challenge to a few of my colleagues, and I said, hey, let's get together once a month. Let's uh, use local ingredients and see what we can create, so that you know we can actually start to eat local. And um, a few people did, and we started doing it month after month. And um, there were three of us that were kind of obsessed with it. And so eventually, I just said, "Hey guys, let's let's check out this program they have at uh, the CIA and see what we can do with this, since it's such a, a major passion." So I took time off, um, went to the CIA to do the Pro Chef uh, One program. When we got back, um, the three of us decided that we wanted to keep things going. We didn't want to lose the skills we had just newly acquired. And so we created um, sort of a pop-up series. Uh, and we were calling it Trio Toque, partly toque being the hat you know that chefs wear, and then toque being, in French, a little bit crazy, <laughs> because it was sort of this hobby that we were doing in addition to our full-time jobs that required a lot of travel. Um, but every month we found time to come together and create a, a delicious meal where we just collaborated. Um, we started off with the first dinner being, I think, about 20 people that were friends that we kind of had to beg to come to uh, a few months later, sort of selling out every every month um, within an hour and having 60 people seated at our table.
1: Wow, incredible. And and then what led you to to open or to launch uh, mm-hmm. Madunu? And and did you keep going with the trio?
3: So um, eventually, um, sort of like, I guess every great group, um, you eventually kind of break up. For us, it was sort of more everyone started having um, new positions and new jobs that they wanted to take on. But I just kept becoming really obsessed with the ingredients and with the cuisines that I had encountered in my travels. And so I decided in 2014 that I was going to do it full time. And um, being originally from Ghana, I... Decided that was where I was going to come back to and set up and um, Figure out what was next and so um, I moved back uh, in 2014 to Ghana set up Midunu and for me the um, My style of cooking is not specifically Ghanaian. So it's a bit of um, The influences of of who I've met where I've eaten the past that food travels, but um, That for me Created what I call like new African cuisine. So it's basically um, culture, cuisine, and community intersecting with environment, sustainability, and economy. So as you know, I would mentioned earlier, I did my first degree in, in geography and environmental studies. So a lot of how I see and think about what goes on my table, what goes in our dishes, is really about what is sustainable, what makes sense for our environment, what makes sense for our terroir here in Ghana, um, and then what's going to make sense? How are we going to eat in 2050? what ingredients should we be kind of as chefs, as tastemakers, putting on those plates to make it sexy again, if you will, um, in the context of a lot of the traditional ingredients here, they've kind of been considered sort of like, you know, old school. But the idea is, you know, as tastemakers, we can shift and change that. And so that became a, a large part of um, the philosophy that I, I brought back with me.
1: Amazing. And then talk about your chocolates and what led led that into becoming I feel it's, it's a, um, it's its own business at this point.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So um, when we started, it was actually, um, well, I was doing dinners. So I was doing these pop-up dinners um, throughout the city and um, I was calling them nomadic dinners. Uh, We were changing location. We were changing menus every single time. And um, the menus were really focused on how do we highlight and showcase underutilized and forgotten ingredients. And, being in Ghana, cocoa is an obvious local in- ingredient that was being underutilized locally. It was being exported, it being extracted um, from here. And so um, to bring it back to the table, I started offering a um, having truffles available at the end of the meal using some of the spices and ingredients that had been part of the, med- the, the dinner. And um, so that was around 20, well, 2014. And then... Um, after some time, people started asking for the chocolates outside of the dinners. So by 2015, we just said, "Okay, you know what? If people want the chocolates, let's go ahead and do it. It can't be that hard." Um, famous last words. Uh, the devil is <laughs> definitely in the details when it comes to chocolate. But it's been a it's been a really interesting journey because in the process of going from having it as a minardise to actually. Uh, having it as a, a standalone product, it's been several years um, in the making. So from 2015, um, it was only in 2020 that we started exporting the chocolates. Um, and it was during COVID when we closed the kitchen and um, we you know, needed to think about how could we offer something to people um, where they were. And uh, the chocolates made sense. The chocolates were something that we could share. Um, to people where they were to bring it to their doorstep. It was a way for us to actually change um, some of also the structural injustice that we had seen in the, the cocoa industry. Um, so rather than sort of extraction and cash crops, it was like, how do we add value at the source at where where you know most of the world's cocoa is coming from? And how do we change that story from being a commodity to actually being a luxury product, being something that, shares tells a story um that goes deeper than than just the beans
1: yeah well you're i mean just from your on your website and seeing all the different um chocolate products and and the liquid chocolate and even the candles i mean you have these big you've put together these gorgeous packages um and the truffles i mean it's you've really created such a beautiful business and I am like I'm really I'm such a chocolate lover. I, <laughs> I, I will I will be ordering. And I wasn't gonna I was gonna say this at the end of the show, but I know you you mentioned to me that listeners, um, you graciously offered listeners of the show if they wanted to, uh, sample your product on the try and um, on their first purchase they can go to your website.
3: Yes, and then um, the code is uh, industry ten. And so that would give you a 10% discount on um, your first order. And I I think for for me, one of the beautiful things about the chocolates is that most people know chocolate, most people like chocolate, um, but what they don't know are some of the flavors um, and ingredients that come from the continent. And it's this wonderful platform where you take something someone knows and something someone does not know, and it creates the beginning of a conversation. It's something that's, that's, um, you know, is 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 approachable something that is delicious something that um can sort of almost be if if i can say like a gateway drug into some of the cuisines on the continent Uh, so i really spend time to pick out ingredients and flavors that i think um will stretch people but also to reintroduce them to them so for example for the collection that we currently have um we're using uh salt that comes from Southern Africa. It's a Kalahari desert salt. So it's actually salt that's harvested from underwater lakes. And so they bring that out and then it's sun dried and then the crystals come up. And those crystals are the ones that we're using in our salted caramel. Um, there's an ingredient called um, dawa dawa, And that's something that is a, it's a fermented African locust bean. And so that's a traditional ferment that comes from the Sahelian parts of West Africa. We put that in the chocolate because it has gorgeous chocolate notes um, that are accentuated in the chocolate. And um, it's just a, a beautiful way of sharing some of these stories. Another one being, for example, precase. precase is um, an arc of taste uh, product that comes you know, from the slow food movement. Um, it's an ingredient you find in West Africa, but it's endangered. And um, a lot of the areas where these trees exist are being deforested. So we're trying to use it as much as possible to to get people engaged. Um, so it's not just the flavors that I think will be new, um, but some of the techniques that are being used are also new. So we do a lot of smoking in West Africa. And personally, I kind of think it's the the sixth flavor, you know, sort of like going beyond sort of the classic five. I, I propose that we add, you know, smoked to it. Um, yeah. And so um, what we've done is there's a traditional method where we smoke water and I've used that to smoke cream that we've used in the truffles. So it, like it really... Um, I think the chocolates are sort of a beginning of a conversation about just learning more about the continent and our culture, our cuisines, our techniques. Um, And I've also found little ways, um, the designs you'll see on the chocolates also introduce some of the textiles and patterns um, from around the continent. Some of them are like handmade textiles that you'll start to see in in fashion today, but you kind of don't even know where it comes from. So Uh, We share all that information in in the little booklet. We have a QR code that kind of helps to break down where the items were sourced, where the textiles or the designs are coming from, um, and what inspired some of these flavors.
1: Wow. I love it. Yeah. I was going to ask you for examples, and you just went ahead with it. (laughs) It was perfect. Um, And I agree. I agree with you with the smoky as a category or, you know, as a, because it's, I don't know. I've had some unique experiences with like a smoky non-alcoholic drink and, mm-hmm. and it's like, it it just stands out in my mind as being so special because it, it does add it's, it's, it's like its own, it's own entity. Yeah. Its own, <laughs> so, um, very cool. So I have a couple of questions for my last guest and I'll ask one now cause it said, seg- it ties into this. Um, on episode three forty seven I had on Jack McGarry. he's the managing director of the Dead Rabbit in mm-hmm. New York City, and one of his questions is, "Can you talk a bit about the ethical ethical nature of chocolate production and how things are developing and changing
3: yeah, so um, I think when we talk about chocolate, I, the first part for me is sort of the 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 system in which uh, cocoa is is processed and harvested and and um, how Money goes back into the system. So, you know, the cocoa farmers, uh, I think I haven't checked the latest stats, but the most recent ones I've seen is something like 2% of the value of a chocolate bar is actually going back to the cocoa producing country. So, we're talking about, you know, cocoa farmers that are taking major risks in terms of growing the product, processing the product. So, for example, in West Africa, I'll speak specifically about Ghana, the cocoa farmer is hand plucking every single cocoa pod and then they are opening each one up and then they are mixing and fermenting it um, on their smallhold farms. So they're taking plantain and banana leaves and they are opening up the the cocoa pods and then covering it up and then allowing it seven days to ferment, then they have to sun dry it. So when we think about the amount of labor that goes into that production, that's the beginning of the process. That's a huge part of the work that has to happen and they're getting, you know, 2%. Um, and so those are some of the questions that we have to ask ourselves. In Ghana, the, the average age of a cocoa farmer is between, I think, 55 and 60 years old, which means that no new people are going into the industry, which means that it's not a sustainable livelihood, which means they're not making enough money. So we should be asking ourselves, if we want cocoa and chocolate to be sustainable, how much should we be paying cocoa farmers? Um, you know, and it's not necessarily only about consumers paying more, but it's also about what is the, how is the industry structured? Yeah. You know, where do we put value? So that's um, one, one part of it. I think that um, the other one is, is how are we, I mean, I think that's, that's the major question. And that's one of the ones that we sort of grapple with on a day-to-day basis um, in terms of, you know, why is it only the cocoa beans that are known from, from Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire or, you know, Dominican Republic or, you know, um, or I think it's um, Grenada, there, Trinidad. There's a lot of different countries that are um, all producing the beans and why are they not producing the chocolate? So whenever, I guess for me personally, whenever I, I, I meet a question or I see something that doesn't seem to make sense from a global perspective, meaning this is where the product comes from, but none of the actual finished product comes from there, we should ask ourselves why you know, the same way we ask ourselves, why is there not more, I don't know, um, chefs of color in certain positions? There's a reason we should ask ourselves why, and then try to go back and, 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 and really, um, deconstruct that and understand where the blockages and what can we each do within our, our, our corners, you
1: know? Absolutely. Well, i I mean, I think it's important. It was an important question to ask and to, to get out and to learn. And yes, um, Lot to think about there. Mm -hmm. I was thinking also with um, your shipping in the US and and how you've set that up as a company. I mean, has that been super complex to figure out um, how to do it?
3: Um, I mean, chocolate doesn't like two things. (laughs) It doesn't like humidity and it doesn't like heat. Um, Neither so, is my hair.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so uh, those are two things. So I mean in terms of like how um, we've found a system that works um, pretty well, um, we actually ship to um, we have a third party logistics partner that's based in the US. So we ship the chocolates um, to them and from there, um, they then send it domestically. and that's that's been working pretty well for us. Um we've had some challenges, but we, you know, we are we're, we're working around it. So um, one of the opportunities that we also saw was to create more products that are shelf stable. So that's how we ended up doing a lot of our drinking chocolates, which has been really fun for me because um, it's similar to the truffles. You know, it's a product that is gonna have either milk, dark, or you know, in one case we did a white chocolate um drinking chocolate. Um, but infusing it with beautiful different flavors that allows um for the chocolate. To shine, and at the same time, it allows for a beautiful platform for the spices. So um, we've also started doing more bars. We've started doing snacks, such as like the um, uh, dark chocolate dipped mango, using you know organic mangoes from Ghana and dark chocolate made in Ghana. So um, that's been something we've done. We've also included our our candles, which is also shelf stable. Um, And so those are sort of the the hacks that we've been kind of working around in terms of looking at. Um, scaling our business in the U.S. given the the logistics of, of chocolate.
1: Yeah, I mean that's it's smart the way you've 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 figured out um, different products to to use in your to have in your collection. Mm-hmm. Made me think even this last summer, I stopped by a um, a chocolate shop in New York called Keys, and I was mm-hmm. going to get some chocolate. And it was like 100 degrees out, and the woman was, well, "Are you going straight home? Like I want to buy it as a gift." <laughs> And I was like, "No, I'm gonna get on a train." And she's like, "Oh, no! <laughs> like, <laughs> like you could eat it now or go home." But I was like, "I mean, it was even so you realize, like, you know, how yeah, how conditions in the world affect even just even just picking up a, a chocolate at a local store." So exactly, I mean, imagine, imagine it is difficult, but you're figuring it out. And um, the other question I had from Jack on episode. 347 was he wants to know how, how does he get to your restaurant? Um, And he noted, it's incredible what you're doing. And I would second all of that. Like how, how do we get there? And, and yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, um, well, we're in Accra. Um, We're um, a direct flight away from New York and DC. So um, we have two airlines that are flying directly from, from uh, New York and DC to Accra. Uh, we have been doing more of a, of a, I would call it almost like a pop-up model. So for us, our dinners are are um, not. It's not a, I would say it's not a restaurant that's open, you know, six or seven days a week. Um, early on, uh, what we were doing is quite different than what the market offers and what um, the market is ready for. So we've always been looking at, um, how often to have our dinners to make sure that, um, it's sustainable for the business. So we have our dinners, um, at the moment, quarterly pre COVID, it was actually every Thursday. Um, and it's just a, for me, it's been a beautiful experience just to share different, um, different facets of, of our cuisine, um, during these sort of like eight to 12 course meals.
1: Yeah. Are most your, are most your guests, visitors or tourists or local or?
3: Um, so I would say when we first started, it was a lot of um, expats that were coming. So people who were living in Ghana who maybe hadn't really tried the cuisine or weren't sure, um, but had heard different you know dishes um, or were looking for a new way of experiencing the dishes. More and more, which has been really exciting, a lot more Ghanaians have come. And so now I would say it's um, at least 50-50. Um, leaning more towards um, a bit more Ghanaian uh, clients coming in now. And so in terms of visitors, um, not as many. I think with COVID, um, that was a bit of a, a change. But um, it's been it's been uh, actually steadily growing and shifting from only expat to sort of more Ghanaian now. Uh, but I think that's probably a bit of a trend everywhere in terms of how um, contemporary... Uh, versions of of traditional cuisine start um, but another on another uh, just kind of going back to the earlier question it's been also wonderful to be doing pop-ups from time to time in different parts of the world so i have had the the luxury and the, the joy to kind of do pop-ups with friends um, in the u.s and outside of the u.s i know i've also done a couple of dinners at the james beard house um, with different partners so those have been like fun moments for me to get a chance to share outside of ghana
1: Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any coming up that coming back to New York City at any time?
3: Uh, Not yet. (laughs) Not yet, but I hope so. Okay.
1: Yes. Stay tuned. Um, Okay. So my other question from my guest on episode 346, I Mm -hmm. had on Jean-Georges von Jurichten. He's one of the world's most famous chefs, who is also a savvy businessman and restaurateur. He has 60 restaurants worldwide, which is crazy. And um, mm-hmm. we did the show from his new tin building. So he wants to know, he wants to know about, is the food, he said, is this food food spicy in middle Africa? I think we're talking about sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and he noted that he's more familiar with the North African cuisine um, than this other region.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so I think- is this- yeah is the question no i mean i think uh in terms of um the the region i would i would start off by saying that there's a lot of diversity we're talking about 54 countries right so um each even within each country um we've got a complexity um that ranges from north to south east to west um for example i would say um in each community has its own traditions right so You know, I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday and they were like, oh, how many languages? And I was like, we've got like over 50 or about 50 languages in Ghana. And if you take a country like Nigeria, there's there's 200, you know, around 200 languages. So if you're talking about that type of diversity just in two countries alone, you can imagine what that means for um, different ethnic groups and different cultures and communities. So I always say, you know, like my first degree was in geography, the beginning of cuisine, the beginning of of how we ate um, was agriculture, right? So first we were hunters and gatherers, then we figure out how to grow food. And so we settle. So how we settle and how we settled and how we ate in community tells you what happened. So that's the first layer is kind of like we settled and based on our geography, we ate what grew where we were. So, as you move across the continent, some ingredients are similar, some are different, but our preservation techniques, our religious beliefs, and some of the other um, taboos and and um, practices um, come into play so um, it's hard to say I mean West Africa is what I know the most, um, but I would say we tend to have slightly bolder flavors. Um, we tend to have like Ghana, Nigeria, they're different ferment well many parts of west africa that some of the fermentation techniques are similar because we have the same climate we have the same geographies similar geographies so what you might see in northern ghana you might find some pockets um in northern nigeria or northern togo but it would be completely different than the coast where it's much more tropical whereas the northern part of ghana is much more um i would say sahelian right so um if you're in northern ghana you're eating millet you're eating sorghum you're eating fonio. Um, if you're in the South, you're probably eating, um, if you're in the middle belt and also in the North, you're eating yams, but if you're in the South, you're eating more plantains, you're eating more, uh, cocoa yams, you're eating, you know, slightly different ingredients. But I think, um, sort of like every culture has its own flavors and its own spices and its own uses. But, um, I think that as we start growing and learning more about each other's food systems, we can learn lessons that can really teach us a lot. So for example, I mentioned some of these grains from Northern Ghana, these are all climate smart, like appropriate uh, grains that will do well as we look at climate change. So the question I would say is, you know, what can we learn from Sahelian parts of West Africa and what people eat there and how that should be shaping the way we we think about eating into the future with climate change, right? So um, I think I think we, there are lots of important lessons um, from the African kitchens that I visited that would be important for people to start, um, understanding more about.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I love that. I mean, talking to you today is so special and I feel like this conversation about the flavors of Africa, even having seen you at the world's of flavor conference in Napa Mm -hmm. um, where that was the theme and it's like more and more, I think is, is, is being talked about and educating people. And, um, I think it's exciting. So um. yeah, the last question I'll ask before we take a break is just what advice would you give to someone who wants to be a chef or a chocolatier, or I know your path wasn't, um, <laughs> <laughs> it,
3: was, it was a little bit of a winding road. Yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, my path wasn't, I mean, traditional either. So I, I relate, but yeah. So, but I mean, do you have any, like your top tip or something? how to answer that is probably a loaded question,
3: but Um, I mean, I, there are so many different approaches, but I I think it's always going to be understand and learn your trade. So it could be taken in so many ways. So whether it's understanding the general foundations of cooking or um, the culture that you're, you're trying to understand or cook um, ingredients from. So just do your homework, you know what I mean? Like just, Um, be a student. And I think we're always students. And that's important to know that it's literally a a journey where one of my favorite things is when I travel and meet other chefs is like learning from them new things and amazing things and and us exchanging ingredients and ideas and concepts. And, And I think that's, for me, what's so exciting about this space is that you're literally learning from every single person. I love going into like meeting old grandmothers and aunties and talking to them for hours about how they cook and why they cook that way. Um, For me, those are the things that really excite me is that exchange of knowledge and just uh, the fact that you never stop.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, and on that note, let's take a little break and we will come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news and my solo dining experience this week and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
2: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese.
1: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is chef and owner Selassie Atadika of Medunu, which we are talking all about her experiences in Ghana, Africa, and beyond with new African cuisine and chocolates. And um, yes, getting hungry as the show goes on and on. So um, it's time for my speed on game. So what this is, I'm going to name a couple of things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Uh, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right, cool. Um, here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Restaurant. Indoor dining or alfresco dining? fresco dining. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail or champagne? Bubbles.
3: <laughs> I'm going for the champagne.
1: Oh, bubbles. I love it. Okay. (laughs) Um, Tasting menu or a la carte? Um,
3: It depends. Uh, Tasting menu if I'm alone, a la carte, if I have friends so I can try everything. (laughs) Okay. I like it.
1: How about small plates or large plates? Small. Communal table or chef's counter? Uh, Communal table. How about tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive. Cool. Okay, a few more. I have um, hot chocolate, coffee, or tea, as far as what you like to drink?
3: Uh, a combination of hot chocolate and tea, actually. It's tea with cocoa nibs.
1: <laughs> Ooh, that's a first, and that sounds delicious. I, I don't know. I have to try that. Okay, white chocolate or dark chocolate? You did mention white chocolate at one point.
3: Yeah, uh... Dark chocolate,
1: okay, um, that would be mine too. Two more. I have cheese plate or dessert, cheese plate in Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Ghana uh,
3: it depends on the season. Winters will be in Ghana <laughs> um yeah i would I would choose ghana
1: what what are the seasons? how are they compared to? new york or the states
3: um i mean it's um it's pretty tropical in accra most of the year we have i for me i see five seasons um we have right now the end of what is harmattan Harmatan is a season where it's a bit coolish well it's not cool but it's it's cooler but there's a lot of dry winds coming off the sahara desert so it's quite a dusty uh season but that's harmattan that's now then we move into sort of um what i call the like hot season so it's really um we don't have rains yet, but it's quite uh, hot um, weather. So it's probably like the peak summertime probably in the U.S. or in like Florida because of the humidity and stuff. Um, and then we move into our first rainy season. Um, then we have a cool weather, which is um, the end of our first rains where um, you'll need like a, a shawl or a jacket in the, in, the, in the evenings. Then we have our second rainy season, and then we go back into harmattan. So those are sort of the seasons that you'll see they're slightly changing you know as everywhere else with um with climate change but it's it's been um kind of those five five blocks of rain rainy and dry um but it's it's a mix i think a little bit of a they're not sort of there are nuances within the, the rainy season the dry season
1: got it so i would say if or when i come visit what month do you suggest
3: um, I think if you don't want super hot weather um July august for me is a beautiful time. um it's also the time where school is out, and so traffic is not as as intense um and the weather is cooler, so yeah,
1: okay, almost when you said that with with school being out, I thought you were gonna say the opposite like it's it's intense people no, uh, are everywhere.
3: yeah you know we don't have um a, a lot of the transportation with children is actually not on school buses. So there's just a lot of like, you know, cars moving children back and forth. Got it.
1: Okay. Good to know and fun. That was the game. Uh, always fun to play. Okay. So for industry news, uh, not the not the happiest news I have picked out, but it's a reality of what's happening uh, in the world. So mm-hmm. uh, the first, the article I have is, in ver, or on variety.com entitled Vox media lays off about 130 employees seven percent of the workforce and this is by Todd Spangle um, and this is talking about the digital media firm Vox media which has brands including vox.com New York magazine thrillist and in relation to this show eater is a part of Vox and I think the 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 one of the the layoffs that that I was didn't see coming, I don't know if he saw it coming either, was um, Eater's chief critic, Ryan Sutton, was laid mm-hmm. off, as well as Eater's senior correspondent, Megan McCarran. And um, Vox Media CEO Jim Jim Bancroft said that, um, you know, this was really, these layoffs were due to the economic climate that just not able to sustain projects in areas of business that have not performed as anticipated are less core to where we see the biggest opportunities in the coming years or where we don't have enough rationale to support ongoing investment and what could be prolonged, a prolonged downturn. So I was sorry to see this news. I mean, it's, um, we've seen it, you know, we're seeing it. There's a, um, there was another article also on cnn business about mega publisher dot-meredith cut 7% of its workforce mm-hmm. and that they have um in style travel and leisure food and wine so 7% seems to be a a common number um yeah. and it's just yeah it's it's a reality but not the greatest news i've i wish i wish everyone lay off um the best in 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 their future so um any Thoughts on this?
3: No, I, I. It's it's unfortunate. I think it's hitting everybody all over the world in terms of the econ- economic impact and trying to find ways to keep businesses afloat. Clearly, it's going to be tough for a lot of people um, in the next few years, and I'm not sure, you know, what the next couple of years will look like for so many industries.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, it's. Yeah, this is, this is, I mean, it's affecting the, so many people in so many industries and we'll have to see how the economy, you know, how things change and um, it's just, there's been a lot of headlines on this and I, you know, you're thinking about what, what's timely to talk about, unfortunately, this is what's timely. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I wish, as I said, I wish everyone the best and I'm, I'm sorry, you know, about the situation, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic for the future yet still, you know, cautious. as, as as our careers are, have unfolded in an unnatural way, you know, sometimes I think you don't, you know, when things happen in a sense, it could be blessings in disguise. So mm-hmm. you never know. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's the news. Uh, I have two announcements Uh, just again tell my listeners about Curious Elixirs who are friends of mine, who I've done some work with in the past, and they have um, these amazing booze-free craft elixirs and spirits which are infused with herbs and adaptogens to help you or your guests unwind and improve the bottom line. And they are offering... My listeners, a free sample box of Curious Elixirs. If you go to their website, curiouselixirs.com, and use the code All in the Industry, all caps, and um, you'll get 100% off your first purchase. And this is good for the first 100 people that sign up. So um, check it out. It's a free tasting flight. And Curious has been named uh, two years in a row Best Non Alcoholic Drinks by the New York Times. So it's amazing. And the second news I have is our announcement is about the 14th annual taste awards that I'm thrilled that our show here has been nominated for three taste awards, including viewers choice for best food or drink radio broadcast viewers choice for best food or drink podcast and viewers choice for best single topic series. So it's time to vote if you feel, um, feel like you want to support our show more we would love it uh you can vote till february 17th and um go to my all in the industry instagram page at all industry and um there's a link in the bio so there is that um and now it is time for my solo dining experience which i'm excited to share i'm excited to share it with you slassy because i think you might find it very interesting. I hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just went to a restaurant called Department of Culture. So here's the rundown. The location, 327 Nostrand Avenue in bed Brooklyn. The concept, it's a tasting menu from north central Nigeria. The chef is Ayo Balagun. Why did I go? Well, I was curious to check out this restaurant that has received a lot of great press and try the Nigerian fair. So my experience, um, I booked this reservation about a month ahead. It's a prepaid reservation that you make online. Uh, I went out, um, just uh, had my dinner there the other night. It was very cold here, just uh, out, went out to bed It was pretty easy to get to. Um, the restaurant is 16 seats. Most are at a communal table. There's a, also a chef's counter where I sat. Um, I could watch the chef in the kitchen, and there were four courses as a part of uh, this meal. And um, between each course, chef came out and talked about each dish and his story behind it. And it was a really cool experience. He took he took and A Q&A at the end. It was intimate. It was um, it was great. It's a, a, a BYOB restaurant too. Just anyone who's thinking of going. That um, I was just I just had water that evening, but um, that's the setup. So what I get, so it's a tasting menu, um, and we had goat pepper soup. We had asaro, mm-hmm. which he explained was a porridge, um, and it had two yams, sweet potatoes and white yams. Uh, the third course was ian, which is, he said, was a pounded yam. It had smoked fish, which was mackerel and spinach. And then for dessert, there was dodo adi ice cream with, which, with fried plantains and vanilla ice cream, so my take was I really, I really enjoyed everything, and the pepper soup had this obviously peppery kick to it, um, and it was it was really nice, especially being that it was a cold night. Uh, I love yams, and what's so I mean, I'm sure we could talk dive into this with so with with you so much because. I've had yam so many times, but this preparation was like nothing I've had before because of the spices and, and technique he uses. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed that. Um, the, the, the iron was, was, was great as well. And of course, ice cream with fried plantains. I mean, I didn't yeah. go wrong there. Plantains is like so. my
3: favorite thing in the world.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was really, it was, um it was a really great experience and delicious and, the ambiance—it's casual. It's like a dinner party at someone's home. Um, again, with a large communal table and four seats at the chef's counter, and they have a record player playing tunes. And it tight—I mean, small staff. I, there was like three, maybe four people running mm-hmm. this whole operation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say it's perfect for a unique dining experience. Interesting tidbit: Department of Culture was born out of the Aya Eba pop-up dinner series hosted by I.O. Um, who has a coffee shop nearby? And this restaurant, his new the, w- this restaurant I went to was on Bon Appetit's 50 Best New Restaurants list, and um, yeah, it's gone. It's gotten a lot of attention, I think, for good reason. Mm-hmm. Personal fun fact: um, I was actually the only solo person at this dinner. Everyone was was a couple, um, which I thought was interesting because a lot of times you go to these pop ups, I kind of thought maybe there'd be more soloists, but I was the only one, and uh, just another. Fun fact about the neighborhood, there's some places nearby I also like called uh, Plastifets and The Fly and Fan Fan Donuts. They're all sort of in this Bed-Stuy kind of Clinton Hill area. The cost of my meal was $97.20, and that's all inclusive. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is, it's D-E-P-T of com. So I'm saying Department of Culture, but it's D-E-P-T as shorthand and same Instagram at DEPT of Culture at BK. So there you go. Have you have you heard of this place?
3: I haven't, but I've actually been out of New York. And one of my goals for this year is to spend more time in the US, particularly in New York and particularly in Brooklyn. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to checking it out later this year. Um, but a lot of the my favorite dishes are actually um, Nigerian dishes were listed in there. So um, it sounds amazing. The pepper soup, um aside (laughs) the pepper and the chili like sort of factor there's a bouquet of about like five to seven or eight spices that are used in there many of them that don't have English names and or are not really even available on the U.S. like spice market and like in terms of like you know going to a regular grocery store even a specialty spice shop you wouldn't find it so it's like really beautiful floral notes that are are in that soup. And um, actually five of those spices are used in some of our chocolates.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. So cool. Yeah. I figured, I mean, it, it was, I feel like there's so much, there's so much to learn about. It was, you know, and I love that about having dining experiences like this, where you're of course going to fed and enjoy delicious food but like get Mm. get educated and and try things that you never had before because as I said like I've I've had yams plenty of times but like Mm. this was a very unique presentation and um and he had he he had stories about you know his every dish uh, of course so um yeah very cool um and the timing yeah to tie into talking to you today I was like ah (laughs) <laughs> got theme, I got a whole theme going on in this show. Yes. <laughs> so for me, I, I'm actually just super excited
3: to see more and more um, uh, restaurants and eateries that are coming up and sh- um, sharing just the diversity of, of the um, the cuisines on the continent. There's just so much to explore and learn. So it's great to see um, chefs out there just doing beautiful things.
1: Yeah, 100%. Okay, it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Rebecca Halpern. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker who directed the recently released documentary Love Charlie, The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. And I worked at Charlie Trotter's back in 97. <laughs> and I went and so this, I went and saw the film and I met Rebecca here in New York. And that's how this whole interview coming up came about but it's a beautiful film and um, I'm excited to talk with her. So, uh, Selassie, can you please ask a question for Rebecca?
3: Yes, um, I've been taking a look at the, your body of work and one of the, um, the questions that came up for me is um, how do you choose the, your subjects? How do you, what makes for a good story or a good character or personality um, that you, you know, what makes you want to just sink your teeth into that story?
1: cool. I will find out. Um, and that's the show. So thank you so much for joining me. From it was my pleasure. Far, far away, but uh, just a plane ride away. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I wish you so much continued success. I'm going to order your chocolates and, um, and I can't wait to have more experiences with you, see you in person and try more of your food. So
3: Definitely. I look forward to catching up with you when I'm in the States um, later this year.
1: Yes. Yes. That would be amazing. And I, I I, mean, I say in the show all the time how I want to travel and go places, but it's like, I really do want to come you <laughs> and make it happen. So maybe I can make it happen later this year. That would be amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. My guest today has been Selassie Atadika. She's of Madunu or Madunu Chocolates and Madunu Institute. And her website is madunu.com and us.madunuchocolates.com. And it's M-I-D-U-N-U. And we will put this in our show notes. But as mentioned earlier, Slacy is offering our listeners here 10% off your first purchase of her chocolates. If you go to us.madunuchocolates.com and use the code Industry 10. And you can follow her at S. Atadika, at Madunu, at Madunu Chocolates, at Madunu Institute, and her hashtag, I'll say, New African Cuisine. So check it out. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritagereadonetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Check out my new book coming out this spring Chefwise Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World by Fiden. It's available now for pre order at Fiden.com, at Amazon.com, and I think other places as well. You could search for the word Chefwise. Um, I'm very excited about that. Thanks to my engineer today, Armin. Thanks again to Selassie. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then. And thank you, as always, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.